Welcome to Business Drivers, the podcast dedicated to helping you be a more effective digital leader. Each episode, we connect you to leaders and ideas that unlock new growth, both professional and personal. Business Drivers is presented by Farron, and I'm your host, Jim Keen. Today, our guest is Jason Meyer. Jason is a consultant that specializes in helping large organizations manage tech and software implementation programs. Those are the ones that drive digital transformation. I wanted to talk to Jason to hear the frontline stories of leading and managing in a really complex change environment. He's in the middle of these programs leading up and also leading around. He's one of those guys that makes the whole thing go. This interview is two parts, but only one of them was recorded. In the first part, the actual recorded one, we talk about the work of actually driving the program forward itself, not the big fancy ideas behind the digital transformation, the charts and graphs, but the day-to-day of moving the actual stuff through the org. It's not sexy, it's not fancy, but it's the critical work that any good program needs. After we turned off the mics, we ended up talking about a couple keys to success that will sound familiar managing the fear of failure, how to lead up to the leadership via candor and direct conversations, and why icebreakers should be part of every program leader's toolbox. So we're going to probably need to re-record that on the mics as part two. Jason's been in the center of some really challenging transformation efforts, so I was glad to get him on the mic. Hope you enjoy this conversation. All right. So Jason, we talk a lot with our consultants and with our clients about digital transformation. And we talk a lot about concepts and philosophies and frameworks and models, but you're one of those people that actually make it go. Can you describe the work that you do? Yeah. So probably um, from a role standpoint, a lot of it is program management, uh, you know, on, on more of the product side. I, I've worn that hat from product manager standpoint uh, on the technology side, uh, dealing with the different capabilities, you know, as part of those roles that I played, uh, you know, a big part of that is shepherding really the digital transformation uh, within those organizations as as part of those roles and, and part of moving strategy into actionable deliverables of that the teams can take and, and run with from that standpoint. Yeah. you know, So one of the reasons why I wanted to chat is that we talk to a lot of folks and a lot of clients and consultants, and they talk about digital transformation as though it's a phenomena. And mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of organizations, especially larger organizations, where there's an explicit program designed to drive a transformational change in an organization. Now, based on the work that you do, how frequently are you seeing those explicit constructed programs that are designed to work across functions to drive transformation? I'm seeing that, uh, and I have seen that at a number of different clients that I, I've worked at. You know, it's somewhat a different word of things that happen inherently within organizations, but it's a little bit more, I guess, organized. Um, I, I think in terms of what does that actually mean, and how do you actually um, encourage that change within the organization in, in a cohesive manner. Yeah. So you've got a, a structure, there's a regular meeting cadence, you've got objectives for the program, you've, you've got work streams, you've got, you know, like a steering committee and a governance situation. And that's different is what I'm assuming than in some organizations where they say, yeah, you know, we're, you know, we're doing digital transformation stuff. <laughs> you know? yes. and, and actually I've seen both of those um, yeah. as well. 
but yeah, um, being planful, I, I think probably the, the, the best word is, is really being planful of how that transformation is going to happen from a change management standpoint, from a resource standpoint, from a time management standpoint. Um, how are you changing the way that you're working um, and moving forward as an organization? You know, when, when we've talked in the past and you've described some of the work that you do, I, I almost think of you in your role as a program manager is kind of like, you know, the coach in the box or the, excuse me, the coach on the sidelines that's trying to drive all like help the, the project leaders make sure they're doing the right things and the governance folks to make sure they're doing the right things and the individual contributors making sure that it's all lining up to the program is, is that a forced metaphor or does that, does that actually make sense? No, that, I mean, that's a pretty good way of, of describing it. Uh, for me, um, it's really taking that high-level strategy and how do you break that down and how do you get that high-level strategy into, uh, like I said, actionable items that the delivery teams can then uh, execute upon. Um, yeah. And, and there, there's a science be behind how you actually get from point A to point B. And, and so that's a, a big part of, of the value that I kind of bring into organizations is, and especially, you know, businesses are different, products are different, um, and, and the level of complexity um, yeah. of where you need to go to get from point A to point B uh, changes. And so that's, that's a big part of, of what I do. Yeah. Our role or my role, I should say, is most frequently as a consultant. And I think it's easy for a consultant to come in and say, here's the framework. Here's the mental model. Here are the best case or the best practices from the outside. Here's some case studies. But I, I think the, the real work of real change happens when somebody like you in that program leader role sort of takes and says, okay, now I got to live with all this. You and your jazz hands can leave, but I got to, <laughs> I got to actually make this work. So kudos. So I got to ask, is, is this the work that you thought that you were going to do when you left college years ago? Like, did you dream of, of leading cross-functional <laughs> transformational change programs in large enterprises? Uh, not even in my forefront, uh, had I really thought that would is where it would take me. I take one step back. I actually went into college as an accountant, which, which lasted all of, uh, one semester. I, I shifted at that point into MIS, which was really managing information coming out of, uh, Eau Claire in, in Wisconsin. My, my first job was really on the technical side. This probably ages me here, but uh, Lotus Notes uh, was at that point, uh, and it's still somewhat emerging platform. Um, and it was a great application in terms of, you know, it started as an email um, platform, but then the, they expanded to allow you to create workflow applications. So you've come a long way from transforming with notes to driving digital transformation. Absolutely. And really, uh, you know, as an extension of those workflow applications, you could start to build web front interfaces uh, yeah. to those applications. And that was really what led me down the realm of, you know, as websites were, were starting to grow at that point and, you know, client facing websites. Um, and so, you know, I made a nice little living as a Lotus Notes consultant. Uh, what it allowed me to do is, um, in addition to building the 
applications, it allowed me to really have a lot of client face time yeah. um, and yeah. really understanding what the business needs were behind the different applications and really kind of get through from the very inception to the delivery. And so it really got me exposure to play a lot of roles and, and wear a lot of different hats at that point. So you move from being able to contribute from technical competence into having the management and sort of the relationship building skills that enabled you to transition into the web and, and digital. Exactly. So fast forward ooh, um, seven, eight years. Um, as Lotus Notes started to, as you know, once IBM had purchased uh, Lotus Notes, took the, the components that they wanted out of it and just kind of let it. I don't want to say go away silently into the night, but, uh, you know, basically they, they stopped optimizing um, and enhancing the product. Um, that's when I decided to, uh, two things happened actually. Number one, I, I moved into my first non-technical role, uh, which was a company called Ratchet. Oh yeah, I know Ratchet. Uh, and really came on as a, a user experience, a UX uh, business analyst. Uh, my first project uh, with them was with Ameriprise. Um, so the advisor, AmeripriseAdvisors.com, at that time, they were looking to do a complete rebuild of it. And so it was a great opportunity for me to really, number one, work with their digital marketing leaders to take their high-level strategy and break that down into uh, a feature set of what we wanted to have as, as part of that new website and then prioritize those, uh, that feature set. So. Oh, I, I got to ask, what do you have a general ballpark of what year this was? Cause our paths may have crossed there. 2010. Okay. I, I was gone by then. Okay. Um, so yeah, that, so um, so then on the front end, um, I really kind of helped to identify um, and I worked to create the user experience then as well. I, that was back when I believe it was Axure. Um, I built wireframes, so it was not interactive at the time. It was yeah. like those capabilities were just getting out there, but I, I still have the binder of all of the wireframes that I created as part of it. But then, you know, Ratchet did the development and so worked with some really talented uh, software engineers within Ratchet. So I, I literally would spend my mornings at Ameriprise and then my afternoons uh, with my development yeah. team. And it was 80 hour weeks of building some really awesome stuff. Um, and so that was my really my first realm of kind of not just taking and, and creating everything myself, but then relying on other people and, and learning to uh, facilitate the conversation and making sure that everyone was on the same page of what needed to happen and how it needed to be done. Yeah. So. so what was the first sort of direct digital transformation project or program that you worked on that was explicitly part of a transformational effort? Well, you know what? Actually, the, probably the first one here uh, would have been uh, at Cargill. So uh, helping their learning and development. And, and so a little bit different from the digital marketing side of things, but really the same types of, uh, it's just different technology, but a lot of the same front end needs of, of how, do you, how do you translate from how you used to work into you know, some structured agile teams. Yeah. So it sounds like for the last couple of years, you've been driving these transformational efforts without providing any, 
identifying information or anything that would be <laughs> damning to anyone. What have you seen in terms of sort of the best practices on programs that are working effectively? And, and I'm thinking more about like actually running the program and the people inside of the programs. So probably the best ones is is really having a, a good process. Uh, you know, I mentioned going from strategy to delivery um, yep. and really having a repeatable process where you can take an enhancement request, a product enhancement request or a strategy and really take it through a discovery process. It's important at that point, uh, you need to have the right stakeholders involved with within that conversation, um, making sure that you're identifying what the value is, uh, what is the overall arching need from a business standpoint, and, and really breaking that down into, okay, now we have a good idea of what we're going after. Taking that through at least a high-level solution discovery um, effort as well to really kind of start to think about, well, how are we going to solve for for this need? Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a, an important piece that, like I said, it, depending on the business, you know, my last client that I had, the, it was a very complex product that we had to go through. And so we had five, six different stakeholder teams that had to be a part of that uh, conversation and just facilitating how, you know, we were going to solve for it. And, you know, what are the pitfalls within, you know, when you start talking about how you're going to solve for it, very interesting discussions. So, so I've been part of, or at the front of some good and some bad digital transformation efforts. And I will take responsibility for the bad ones, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I think when they haven't gone as well as everyone hoped, I think the the thing that gets lost is the focus on the needs and the wants and the desires of the users, whether it's the user of the software, if they're internal or the consumers on the other end. As a program leader, how do you avoid, you know, getting bogged down in bureaucracy and staying focused on the actual people for whom the software will be a benefit. In other words, how do you not lose the user? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's a good question. It's, it's, it's really making sure that you have that user feedback throughout the process. You're really talking about really going from discovery to delivery, making sure that that voice is there upfront and that feedback is there throughout the entire process, not only from discovery, but then as you get into delivery, having some some really good demonstrations, um, you know, as you build that into your your cadence that you have within your, your sprint schedule and and that constant feedback that you have, because you know it and I know it that uh, what you initially envisioned over here at the start isn't always, you know, so many things can change once you really initiate this this uh, uh, enhancement or, or the strategy. So many things can change. And so having those constant touch points throughout the process is really important. Uh, otherwise, you're going to get to the end and you're going to find out that you just missed the nail. Yeah. One of the examples that I use a lot that is something that most people can can see or recognize or understand is how Domino's has transformed itself over the last 10 years. You know, I think if, if you've purchased a pizza from Domino's in the last 10 years, it's obviously a great experience. It's dramatically different and better than it was even five years ago. And people get wowed by the tech that's being deployed. But in reality, it's all because of 
a little bit of a freak out that people had about both the employees inside of the domino. So they're, you know, users in some ways, but also the product was bad. <laughs> and so the whole transformation was kicked off by, we need to have a better pizza and we need to have a better experience. And so it's all about the user. So I think, you know, it's just an example of how people get really fired up about the cool tech that they're using, but all of that is there to serve literally serve a better pizza and make it easier for people to have that experience. So interesting, you know, as a program leader, when you're driving these changes, they can get sort of process driven or bureaucratic or a little political. Are there any techniques or methods that you're using to help your teams avoid, you know, either avoid or minimize getting sort of caught up in the politics of these transformational efforts? Uh, that's a good question. Give me a, can you give me an example in terms of where you're going with in terms of politics? I'll give you an anonymized example. Sometime in the last couple of years, I had been advising through Farron, one of our clients that was trying to drive a digital transformation program, but often decisions on product features, product functionality were driven by that's what the CEO wants. Uh-huh. She, he or she would say, that's what I want. And the rest of the team would then start to prioritize things, whether it's budgeting decisions or product and features and functionality or content based on what the highest level person in the room wanted. Yeah. And, and then, then you're, you're driving transformation and it's nominally digital, but it's not really the, the point of a true digital transformation. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you uh, probably a good example. Um, one of my clients for years was in acquisition mode. And so basically the one thing they didn't do when they acquired different companies is they maintained their different, basically data repository structure. Um, so at the end of the day, what you're left with is six different databases that some had good data, some had bad data. Um, And so from an initiative from our program, it was rebuilding a a client-facing portal, uh, essentially. And and a big part of what we were trying to build was a a more seamless user experience where you had a single book of business made up of multiple different types of products where right now it it was, you know, different products had different data structures. And so what we found was everything that we wanted to do from a user experience standpoint had, okay, this level of effort on the front end, this much on the middle layer, and then this much, this huge anchor um, of change that you had to incorporate um, from a data standpoint. And so my recommendation was to let's put a pause on what we're trying to go after this from, from a user experience standpoint. And let's, let's fix the data, the backend data issues, because everything that you want to do from a marketing standpoint is, is just being dragged down. You know, what should be a one month effort um, now becomes a a three month, four month, five month effort for the initiatives that you have. So you talk about, you know, the challenges that you have from, from a leadership standpoint and, and, you know, some of those, 
you know, the, the funding that you have sometimes, and this is part of the value of, of transformation of just how you're funding different things. And this was this was probably just as this transformation was happening uh, and, and probably as a good use case, we weren't able to pause um, and, and kind of pivot into fixing those data structures because your funding was was really tied up into, this is what you said you were going to deliver. Yeah. This is what, you know, at the end of the year, this is what we're going to, we're going to evaluate you on. And, uh, and, and so it's, it's a very challenging piece because you have different barriers, I think, in terms of when you have a longer term vision from a company and you have short term goals that don't necessarily align with that long term vision. Well, we uh, should probably, we should probably have a second conversation, maybe off the record about, <laughs> about how badly corporate funding models screw up well-intentioned transformational efforts. I, I just, that's a pattern that I keep seeing over and over and over and over and over again. So I want to switch gears a little bit as, as the program manager on these efforts, you're in a lot of ways, a hub of relationships and work inside of these complex efforts. And as the hub, you you know you see good and bad but you're also an influencer of the mood of these programs mm -hmm. and all of those i would imagine are based on on relationships so i guess i i, I want to ask especially now that we're all still working remote a fair amount what are the techniques and approaches you're using to make sure you're getting all the voices in the room into your mix for planning or for decision making so that idea of like Everyone's distributed. Everyone's got their own thing. As the middle, what are you doing or what are techniques can you share on getting everyone's voice in, in, involved? And that's a good question. And especially when you bring up COVID, I am a big proponent. Uh, I'm very observant of body language. Yeah. Um, and, and you don't get that when you're on a conference call. Um, you can somewhat within Zoom. But We've all been um, in, in different cross-functional teams where you have certain persons that may dominate the conversation. Um, and you have some that might just kind of sit back in, in the background a little bit. And, and there's a few different things, I guess a few different techniques that, that I like to use on my end. Number one is really just understanding and 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 building, as you said, really building a relationship with the individuals outside of you know a group uh, discussion format. Um, understanding what they like, what they what they don't like, how they like to interact. Um, I, I know some very intelligent people that are very thoughtful um, and aren't necessarily comfortable jumping into a conversation. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's giving the flexibility of. Um, allowing them to provide some feedback via email. Um, and I, I've had some really long emails <laughs> where I just had some fantastic feedback on different pieces, but they, they interact in a different way. Um, yeah. they're, they're motivated in a different way. This is kind of a good little story. As part of my uh, MBA experience, um, I, I always come back to my number one value that I took out of that is the fact that you would have uh, cross-functional people essentially that would approach a single use case or a case study. Yeah. Um, and so you had uh, accounting, you had finance, marketing, HR, you had all these different people that had a different perspective of how to approach a problem. 
And I always thought that was like one of the most valuable things to, to listen and to observe. And when you talk about from a program management standpoint, those are a lot of the same roles that, that you're interacting with. So it's very interesting. And it, to me, it's very important, especially when you have a cross-functional team to get those voices that may not have that same viewpoint. And so it's, I love to have that diversity of dialogue that you have. And that's, that's one of the things that I enjoy most about from a program management mm-hmm. standpoint is being able to build those relationships with all those individuals that now you're pulling them and, and trying to get them to move in the same direction. Um, and it, it's just a different way that it, to interact with, with various individuals. Yeah. So interesting as a, as a program manager, and that's in air quotes, um, <laughs> you're really a program leader. You got to manage both the day-to-day work. You have to guide the team. You have to support the team. You have to lead the team. What's what's changing in your leadership style or your leadership toolbox, if you think about it that way? You know, if you go into a day thinking like, here's what I'm good at, here's what I'm working on, here's the tools and techniques I have, what what's what's changing or getting added to your toolbox as you're gaining experience? To be honest, one of them is is to use more humor. <laughs> you know, it's um I, I've done better to make it a little bit more fun. And, and when there is, I, I'm a big fan of, of conflict, a healthy conflict. Um, <laughs> I, I disagree. I, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Dumb joke. Keep going. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, it's, it's gathering those, those inputs. Um, and, and when you come into an organization, there's also sometimes, you know, some pre, built up emotions between individuals and it's it's understanding some of those uh, nuances that uh, you have to navigate within different individuals and, and kind of an extension of that is you talk I talk about emotional intelligence um, and and being able to control emotion in a, in a you know positive way and, and that's a, a strong suit of, of mine it's it's being able to extend that to other people and help to coach and have those conversations where uh, maybe the body language isn't what you want. Uh, maybe the tone isn't quite what you need. Um, and being able to interact with people in, in, in a positive way and, and being able to, like I said, you have a lot of different personalities. You have a lot of different viewpoints um, and a lot of passion. I, I love passionate people that, you know, they bring in and it's like, oh, this is what I want. A, B, and C, boom, let's go. Yeah. But uh, it it needs to adhere to what other viewpoints are at the same time. So yeah. um, I think in terms of, you know, one, you know, we talk about a, a tool set from that standpoint, I think it's being able to relate with different people. Um, and a lot of that just comes with experience. Um, I think with just with working with various different individuals, and I think a big part of it is just effort um, and being able to follow up with different people and engage with them outside of uh, a meeting structure and just learn more about different people, um, relate with them on a personal level. You know, when, when you and I jumped in, it's like, oh, hey, uh, what do we have in common? You know, where can we kind of build a comfort level uh, and some commonality around that? So I think in terms of relationship building, that's a big part of it is just identifying where you have some common ground that you can just have just a conversation that could be completely outside of what you're doing at work. You know, what is your family doing? You know, it's just, I think it's just a skill set that I think is um, 
you know, very much learned um, and, and you get better at it as you get older. Um, but I think it's a big part of, you know, uh, of just building some commonality with, with different individuals. Boy, I, I, I love that advice. It's straightforward and simple, but really hard to keep front and center when things get really, really busy. And especially as we're all looking at each other through Zoom, you know, that, <laughs> that human touch is really important. I, um, I was talking to somebody earlier this year about it, and I was referring to it as leadership fast and slow. You know, you have to be quick with decisions, you have to be quick with directions, and you have to be ready to be agile, but you have to pair that with the thoughtful, slow listening that builds relationships, you know, taking the time to understand, you know, people's personal lives, understand their personal context, understand their ambitions, and really, really listen. That takes time and energy when everyone's at their wit's end. So speaking of bit at being at wit's end, what are you going to stop doing as we turn the corner in 2022? You know, as you're, as you're taking lessons out of this year, what are you going to stop doing in 2022? Well, hopefully not as many Zoom calls. <laughs> Uh, but but serious, um, you know, it, it's it's actually a very interesting, um, you know, as people are moving back into the office place. Um, at the same time, it actually opens up a bigger, uh, should I say, talent pool, um, mm -hmm. where it's not as regional as as it used to be. And I think it's taught us that technology can be used to be efficient uh, from a work standpoint, but it also allows teams to be a little bit more diverse regionally um, that, you know, just take Minneapolis, for example, is you don't necessarily need everyone in Minneapolis in a, in a Minneapolis office. It allows some little bit more flexibility from that standpoint. Um, and it, it allows for, I guess, a broader net, I guess, in terms of building um, the teams that you need. Um, and from vice versa, um, it also opens up uh, more opportunities for the people that are on your team um, to also go elsewhere as well. So uh, I think I got off off topic a little bit, but um, it's just kind of an interesting, um, I think, as we turn the page into 22, um, it'll be really interesting to see how that plays from from more of an HR standpoint and, and how you're building teams and how you're retaining teams. That's great. That's standpoint. great. So we, we try to wrap these up with a couple similar questions. So I'm going to ask you so two questions. So what's your favorite non-work book or podcast that you would recommend or that is a go-to for you? Yeah, you know, um, so I'll, I'll twist that a little bit. Um, what's become go-to just from a, a new standpoint is the Wall Street Journal and The Economist, just from a, a very moderate, neutral source of information from my standpoint, which can be which can be challenging. From a, a podcast, I'll, I'll give a shout out uh, on a local uh, Schmidt list with uh, Kurt Schmidt. Um, some really good topics uh, from that standpoint that I really enjoy uh, following up on. He's a really good interviewer too. I've yeah. I've I've sat across from him. I okay. He's a he's a curious dude that brings a lot of energy and a ton of wisdom. So it's a good yeah. it's a good conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, from a book standpoint, um, you know. Uh, not necessarily a non-professional one, but, you know, critical conversations. Um, I, I'll, I'll kind of reread at times, um, which, is, which is always a valuable one. And then I, I just kind of go through the gauntlet of, of mostly 
really soft skills. Um, it, I really enjoy books that, that really kind of um, go through just from an interaction standpoint, from a leadership standpoint. So, so Critical Conversations is a book that you would recommend? That's one. Uh, let's see. Off the top of my list, um, there's a few more. A Whole New Mind, uh, really kind of an interesting just about um, how left side of your brain versus right side of your brain and how, yeah. how I'm not sure if you've ever read that one. Um, yeah. I'll jump to that one every once in a while. That's great. All right. So the other question we ask is, what is the kindest thing someone has done for you either at work or at home or at some point in your life? Yeah, I, I would say professionally, one of the nicest things was uh, an executive for one of my clients. Uh, and it wasn't even someone that I, I really worked with on a regular basis. Um, she had uh, written a handwritten note when, when, as I was leaving, thanking me for all the contributions mm. that I had made for the organization. Um, and I always remember how that made me felt just the personal gesture of not even just an email, but, but going old school and just having a handwritten note. Um, and that's one thing, you know, as you offboard different team members, I, I've always tried to keep that in mind and have that same level of engagement and, and, and thoughtfulness, um, I think with different people. So that, that it's a gesture that I think really left a mark with me. Well, that's great. Hey, Jason, thank you so much for being part of this and being willing to uh, sit down and have an interview with us. I, I learned a ton. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Jim. Thanks for listening to Business Drivers presented by Farron. Find us at hellofarron.com to learn more about the work we do, sign up for our newsletter, and find articles and resources to help you grow as a leader. Or find us on Twitter at hellofarron or on LinkedIn. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend. It's the best way for us to grow our audience. We'd love to reach more people with the work that we're doing. And if you have ideas or advice or feedback or complaints, please reach out to us on Twitter or send us an email at bizdrivers at hellofarron.com. That's B-I-Z-D-R-I-V-E-R-S at hellofarron.com. Until next time, this is Jim Keen saying thanks.